Helen Slater's thoughts on the new Supergirl TV show, and delving into the first live-action Kara Zor-El in Supergirl the movie. This, this is Supergirl, Supergirl Radio. Welcome to Supergirl Radio, your source for all things Supergirl. I'm Teresa Giacino. And I'm Rebecca Johnson. In this episode, we're going to revisit everyone's favorite superhero guilty pleasure, Supergirl the movie. But first... The news. First up, from February 15th, uh, Toy Fair 2015 was going on, and uh, one of the big announcements there was that Diamond Select obtained the DC license, uh, as we learned from sciencefiction.com. And one of their big releases was a new Supergirl figure. Um, The Supergirl figure is based on the character designed by Bruce Timm, which was used for Superman the Animated Series and Justice League Unlimited. And the Diamond Select release says that they are finally entering the world of the DC Animated Universe. Uh, Their first release takes them all the way to Metropolis, the home of Superman the Animated Series, and the adopted home of Superman's cousin from Argo, Supergirl. Uh, Supergirl rests atop a rocky outcropping, ready to hurl herself at the next foe to threaten her favorite city. Measuring approximately nine inches tall atop her sculpted base, Supergirl comes packed in a full-color window box and is in scale with the other femme fatales PVC statues. And it was sculpted by Steve Varner Studios. So we're very excited about that. The figure looks awesome. And the second bit of news that we have is from January 22nd from Blaster.com. It's about Helen Slater. And she has expressed an interest in the new CBS Supergirl TV series. If she is approached to appear on the series, Helen Slater said, I think that it would be such a thrill. Having been on Smallville and being at these conventions, the fans just love it so much. They love when there's any kind of crossover or, oh my gosh, she was in the original or he was. I think the writing has gotten a lot smarter now. Somehow they've cracked the code or something to have a really great sense of humor, but have it still be smart and not pandering to a younger audience. It seems like something has changed. Helen Slater also said, I just have great faith that they'll figure it out in in the CBS world. They're just super talented, so fingers crossed. So hopefully... Maybe if she's expressing this interest, maybe one of these days in the CBS Supergirl TV series, they'll have her come on and make a cameo. That would be really fun. That would be amazing. I would love to see that. And I don't think that's uh, out of the realm of possibilities because on The Flash, they've brought people in from the original uh, Flash TV series. So exactly, I think they might want to do it. Well, now uh, that we've got the news out of the way, let's get into the meat of this episode. And I think I've been very much looking forward to this episode in particular, where we could talk about Supergirl the movie. 
so just to get started with that, I actually just rewatched this for the first time since I was like 10. So <laughs> um, it was really fun to go and rewatch. Was it um, as you remembered it? You know, it's <laughs> it's funny. I thought it was bad when I was 10. I think now I found some more redeeming qualities in it. It's weird. Like you'd think it'd be the other way around. Yeah, I think for me it probably was the other way around because when I was a kid, I loved it. It scared the crap out of me, but I loved it. And now I kind of am seeing, okay, there's some real serious flaws in this movie. <laughs> uh, but I do, like you said, I, I do find there are some redeeming qualities about it. Well, just uh, to get started, I've got some uh, facts about Supergirl the movie um, that you might be interested in. The title, the actual title of the film is Supergirl, but it's most commonly referred to as Supergirl the movie, as I've been saying it, kind of to uh, liken it to Christopher Reeve's Superman the movie. Um, it was released in 1984, so it came after Superman 3, which was in 1983, and then just before, uh, well, before Superman 4 in 1987. And it actually is connected to the Christopher Reeve Superman films through Mark McClure's Jimmy Olsen, which is great kind of the first attempt at a DC cinematic universe, mm -hmm. so to speak. It was produced by Ilya Salkind, and he also produced the first three uh, Christopher Reeve Superman movies, plus the Superboy TV series, which I totally forgot existed. Yeah. Um, and it was directed by Jeannot Svark, and actually Robert Wise, who directed The Sound of Music and West Side Story, was approached to direct this, which seems kind of insane to me. I was so <laughs> surprised by that when I was kind of doing some research. I was like, man, they they aimed high and they were dreaming big to try to get yes. Robert Wise. Because when I think about him and like The Sound of Music and some of those old musicals, those were just spectacular films. And so I guess when they were like, all right, put down your wish list. <laughs> they wrote down Robert Wise. Yeah, although it's weird. It's weird and interesting to think that they would go to a um, musical director for uh, a film like this. Because, I mean, obviously it's not a musical, but it tells you what they had in mind for the scope and mm -hmm. the you know the way they were planning on filming it. Like that they would approach somebody like that. Right. Well, in addition to Svark uh, directing Jaws two. And that Santa Claus movie with Dudley Moore. Which I watched as a kid all the time. I haven't seen it. Since, like you with Supergirl the movie, I haven't seen that since I was a kid. But I used to, I used to love it. I, you should do a rewatch of that now sometime and see how you feel about it. <laughs> Probably. Um, but uh, he actually uh, directed a ton of TV shows as well. Um, Columbo, Six Million Dollar Man, Kojak, Ally McBeal, The Practice, Jag. Um, even as recently as Fringe, uh, Private Practice, Grey's Anatomy. Supernatural, Scandal, Castle, and of course, Smallville. Now here's where things get interesting and kind of cringe-inducing. Um, the budget for the film for Supergirl uh, was $35 million, but it only made $14 million at the box office. Ouch. It is definitely considered a flop, which is unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. Well, the opening titles, the movie starts with an opening title sequence that tries to mimic the Superman films opening titles, which I kind of hate, to be honest, because it goes on for like two and a half to three minutes and it's just <laughs> names. I'm like, come on, let's get to the story. Like what I appreciated about Man of Steel, I know people had mixed reactions to that. I personally loved it. But what I loved about Man of Steel is that 
Snyder doesn't mess around with that. He just gets to pregnant lady screaming. We get to the birth. <laughs> Krypton is destroyed. Like, he doesn't mess around with putting names up on, on the screen, which I appreciate. But these movies did back in the 80s, and they took great pride in it. Uh, according to IMDb.com, they cost almost $1 million to make just these opening titles. Oh, so geez. that <laughs> that shows... like a good chunk of their budget for like... <laughs> just for the names. Just to show who's in the movie. And so that shows how much they really cared about that opening sequence. And what's interesting about the the crediting of the people in the movie that Faye Dunaway gets top billing over Helen Slater. So the villain of the movie gets above the heroine of the movie. And that's because Faye Dunaway was a huge star at the time. She had already done Mommy Dearest and Bonnie and Clyde at Chinatown, all those movies. So she was a big name at the time. Definitely. And... Fun fact, the movie was originally going to start with the destruction of Krypton, but the more they analyzed and thought about it, they decided to go a different way. So it could have gone from opening title sequence to destruction of Krypton, but instead it starts in another way. Yeah, in a in a kind of I, I love I do love the way it starts. Um it's almost really casual and casual alien. Like it's very just kind of hanging out, Kara walking around. Um <laughs> But actually, um, I do want to get into Argo City. Um, but just real quick, I, as I was rewatching this, I was uh, watching it on Amazon, and I was trying to fast forward through the credits, and it took way longer than I thought it would. Like I didn't realize they were two minutes long, <laughs> yeah. and so I'm like, okay, I don't want to miss it. I don't want to like miss the beginning, and so I'm like stopping, and it's it, there's still more names, yep. and then I fast forward a little bit more. Oh, there's still more. <laughs> oh wait, there's still more. And I was like, come on, are you kidding me? <laughs> like I could go make a sandwich. <laughs> um, but uh, as we said, you know, it kind of starts, you know, with a very kind of casual Kara kind of introducing us to Argo City by you know walking through it, saying hi to people. Um, and Argo City itself kind of looks like, uh, you know, a spider spun a web or like this big kind of crystal structure. And that's actually how, uh, Janot refers to it on the, um, the audio commentary on the, you know, Supergirl, uh, DVD. Um, <laughs> it was founded by Zoltar, um, and it has lights that circle around it for some reason. There's a lot of like scientific talk about Argo City being inner space and I don't know how that works with the lights and all of that. Like, I don't understand all that. Yeah. And then when she's coming out of it later, it's like, you know, she has to go through the lava of inner space. Like, it looks like she's in a lava lamp and just kind of getting shot through a lava lamp into outer space. And I'm like, what is this? Um, and also, it looks like everybody's kind of wearing shower curtains or Huxtable sweaters. <laughs> like, that's the the fashion in Argo City leaves something to be desired. Yeah, uh, I think on the DVD commentary, they were talking about how they were sort of hippie-ish. They were, it was all about, they were kind of going for uh, a harmonious sort of feel, like a, you know, like kind of a, a hippie vibe, that everything was harmony and peace and that, that kind of thing. Yeah, which is weird because it seems like Zaltar is the only hippie artist you know, like everybody <laughs> kind of talks to him like he's a weirdo, um, but yet they were trying to have that that feeling kind of come through all of the design and everything. But we know that Argo City is an inner space um, and that it's powered by this basically, you know, overblown 
Christmas ornament um, <laughs> called the Omegahedron or Megahedron, mm-hmm. um, which is basically yeah, a cross between a Christmas ornament and one of those like bouncy balls that lights up. <laughs> that's, um, a per- that's a fair description. <laughs> I was like, really? This is powering your whole city and you're putting it in your pocket? Like, what's wrong with you? Yeah, I would have just called it a spinny ball of light, but <laughs> yours, is, yours is much more appropriate. A spinny ball of light. Well, it is. Um, but yeah, without that uh, Omegahedron... Uh, Argo City can't last more than a few days. So how he get, he's able to get his hands on it and carry it around and use it to do art projects, I have no idea. <laughs> um, but then we get to Kara. As I said, she's kind of introducing everybody. She's played by he- Helen Slater. And um, according to IMDb.com, uh, Melanie Griffith and Brooke Shields were also considered for the role of Supergirl, which is, I can't imagine either one of them, um, even in their heyday. It's like Helen Slater just seems so perfect to me for that part that I, you know, I'm like, what? Um, Now, the first time we see her, you know, it's very kind of mundane. She's just walking around saying hi to kids, saying hi to random passersby. It's not particularly interesting. She goes to a class that's just full of children, which I don't understand. Like, why was she, was she just going to hang out with them? Was that her class? Like, was she supposed to be in there? Was she a student? I didn't understand that. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and her age is an interesting thing because she's, like, in high school, sort of, but then it's it, there are times when she's, like, an adult. There are times when she seems super young, mm-hmm. and she seems to not know much. Um, everybody seems to have to, like, teach her stuff. She seems mm-hmm. really almost overly naive for, you know, a teenager, and obviously – you know, teenagers have a lot to learn, but she seems to not know very basic things. Maybe she was held back in that class. I mean, she wasn't good at math, so <laughs> maybe she, she she was being held back in that classroom full of, full of children, and she was a student. I don't know. But I did think it was uh, because I am a Star Wars fan. I thought it was funny that one of the kids that the teacher calls on is named Leia, and I was ah. like, I wonder if this, because this is after the original, you know, 1977 uh, episode four that we call it now, Star Wars A New Hope came out. So I'm like, right. were they trying to capitalize on Star Wars popularity? I don't know. I'm just putting <laughs> that out there. <laughs> that is interesting. No, it's true. And uh, we know that her mother's name is Allura, played by Mia Farrow. Mm-hmm. Again, really great cast of, of actors in this movie that ended up being not very good. Um, and her father is Zorel. And yeah, she <laughs> she seems like she's in this class with these kids. She doesn't know much about anything. She's bad at math. She's bad at bras. Um, like apparently they don't wear bras in Argo city cause she has no idea what they do or how they work when right. she it's, gets one. I think that's part of the sort of hippie mentality that kind of exists in Argo city. <laughs> it's true. Like just, letting, just it, letting it all hang out, let it all hang out. And also like, you know, kissing seems to kind of mystify her. When uh, later on we'll talk about Ethan, the lawn man. Um, landscape guy. Landscape guy. Oh, yes, the landscape guy. Um, but talk about, you know, eventually they kiss and she seems to, like, have no idea what to do. And then she's, like, kissing herself in the mirror. Like, she's never even, like, heard of kissing before. And I don't know how they do things in Argo City and how they, you know, populate the – how they populate the planet. But – It seems weird that she wouldn't even know, like, have a concept of what kissing is. Right. So now we've got Zoltar, who is her hippie mentor, um, who is founder of the city and uh, an artist. Um, And the internet says that uh, Dudley Moore was offered the part of Zoltar, but he turned it down. 
Um, and on the audio commentary, um, the director of the film says that Peter O'Toole was their immediate choice and that it was unanimous. So decide for yourselves which, <laughs> yeah, which version right. is true. Now, <laughs> it's kind of crazy that Peter O'Toole was the, you know, ended up doing this role. He's an eight-time Oscar nominee who worked pretty much right up until he died in 2003. 2003, 2013. Um, it was very recent. He won an honorary Oscar in 2003. Um, he's also won a Golden Globe and an Emmy. Um, he's done lots of Shakespeare, lots of stage work. And he really was like, for me, Helen Slater and Peter O'Toole were the best parts of this film. I agree. So he can create things. He's, he's an artist and he, he kind of creates life. He creates trees. Um, he knows about Earth. He wants to visit Earth. Which makes me wonder, how does he know all of that stuff about Earth? Do they go there sometimes? You know, how, like later on in the Phantom Zone, he talks about knowing what a train is. Like how, do they have classes in the little school about Earth? Well, obviously not, because Kara doesn't know anything. But yeah. but yeah, I was sort of wondering, well, how does Zoltar know all this stuff if he's never been there? Now, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. Do they know about it? Because I, I feel like some it came up in conversation where she says, like, do we know about it because of my cousin or something? Like, They uh, do know that Kal-El is on Earth. How they know that, I don't know. But yeah. she knows that her cousin is on Earth. Yeah, and they're not really clear as far as, you know, if, you know are they spying on him? Are they getting information? Like, what's going <laughs> right. on? See, transmitting um, signals back to them. I don't know. Exactly. So he wants to visit Earth. Um, it's kind of an obsession for him. And he wants to go by way of a spaceship through the binary chute, um, which is kind of like a watery wormhole. And the, the DVD audio commentary for Supergirl, Janot said that the water footage that they used was taken from an Oxford documentary uh, based on the research of the viscosity of liquids. So that's where all that imagery comes from. So... Like an idiot, and I'm sorry, but I just wanted to shake her. Um, <laughs> Kara plays with Zaltar's wand and the Omegahedron. So here, child who's bad at math, take this power source that's super important and go make art projects. <laughs> right, that's creating life. Or the illusion of life. <laughs> the illusion and, of life. And go, go play with it. Go play with it. Make a butterfly. So she does. And then it flies out of Argo City and it breaks the, f like, really like cellophane barrier yeah, it's pretty that flimsy. protects the city from the outside. So like we're like we have to protect the omegahedron because it's the only way we can survive and we we have to protect ourselves in the city and in inner space and then all it takes is a butterfly going through paper to wreck <laughs> the whole thing. Um the the butterfly and the omegahedron go flying out of this hole in the cellophane of Argo City and it almost takes Kara with them, becomes really windy and Zaltar fixes the break with his wand, but how does that work if it's only create you know if it only creates the illusion of life? Yeah, if that um, if that really caused a break in the Argo City barrier, when I I don't understand that. That's when th this is one of those things where I was like questioning all of the plot points of this movie. I was like, wait, if that's just the illusion of life, it really wouldn't fix the problem. So I, I'm I'm getting very nitpicky on this, but oh no, totally. I think, I think it's, it's strange. The leaps of science in this movie are yes. like are crazy, um, but yeah, it, it's it creates the illusion of life, and also it's a sol soldering iron, because um, <laughs> yeah. you could do crafts with it and also make trees. Yes. Um, so in order to get the Omegahedron back, uh, Kara gets into this egg-like spaceship that uh, Zaltar was planning on using, 
And, you know, she feels super guilty about being an idiot and letting it go out the flimsy cellophane. <laughs> so she goes looking for the omegahedron. Um, and somehow she flies out of Argo City without breaking the barrier. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't know how the ship got out. They must have had some sort of tunnel specifically to... So they must... They must fly out of Argo City. People must do that. It must be a thing that they do. Yeah, they have. They they clearly have the technology and have ships. It's just a matter of when they can leave and how. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he was having trouble getting to Earth. Like it wasn't a thing that was possible. But uh, can you travel around inner space? I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know how <laughs> that works. Um, but according to the DVD commentary, originally it was going to be more. Um, like Superman, where there's destruction in Argo City and Kara's parents put her in a capsule to escape. But I actually kind of like the fact that she leaves of her own volition. Like it's I, not yeah. like a disaster or something. It's like something she has to go do. Um, the fact that the thing she has to go do is stupid is beside the point. Yeah, <laughs> and, and well, and she's trying to fix her own mistake, which I like. Right. She's owning up to, I'm the one, I'm the dummy who let that go out there and I'm going to have to go and get it. So I yes. like that. Oh, and now, Rebecca, take us into the uh, amazing and fabulous uh, Faye Dunaway. <laughs> All right. So according to IMDb.com, uh, which has a lot of trivia on this movie, uh, Jane Fonda, Goldie Hawn, and Dolly Parton all turned down the role before Faye Dunaway took it on. And there's also another source that I read that said Dolly Parton was wanted for the role of Bianca, who is Selena's sidekick. So it's another one of those, who do you trust? on those sources. But I, I think it's really interesting that there there were all these, um, you know, other actresses who are approached for the part. But I kind of love that Faye Dunaway plays Selena because she does it with such a, a go-getter kind of performance. Like, she's really... <laughs> she she knows it's a witch, she knows that it's the villain, and she just owns it. So I kind of love Faye Dunaway in this. And she did... <laughs> genuinely scare me as a child oh yeah she definitely did well and it's it's funny because I remember seeing uh mommy dearest when I was a child um which is not a movie you really want a child to see probably since it's not. all about like child abuse but I yes. saw it anyway and um so that plus this movie where she's pretty much doing a um you know kind of recycled mommy dearest performance as Selena mm-hmm. but I just thought that Faye Dunaway was this horrible person that I should be afraid of because that was all I knew of Faye Dunaway was Mommy Dearest and this movie. And I was like, no, that lady's bad. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever seen Faye Dunaway in something where she was not someone you should be afraid of. Yeah. So I, well, I mean, you see, you, you get to understand her more and stuff like, you know, obviously Chinatown and Network and, and right. she's not quite so, you know, cartoony villain horrible. But um, yeah, it was pretty scary for like 10 year old me. Yes, I agree. And even though there were these other actresses, according to IMDb, that were approached for the role on the DVD commentary, Jeannot says that Faye Dunaway was at the top of the list. Uh, So getting into the movie, the first time we see Selena, she's having a picnic on this tiger skin rug with this dude named Nigel, who is her magical teacher. And also, I don't know if there was something romantically happening with them at some point. They, they seem to have a connection. I don't know if it was just like a mentor-mentee thing, but they are definitely a team of sorts. And she says in that scene that her goal is world domination. So again, dream big, aim high. She's not, she's not going to settle for just, I want to take over this little town. 
I don't want to just be powerful. She's she's going for world domination here. <laughs> and she even says, such a pretty world. I can't wait until it's all mine. So she, she's, <laughs> she, a great line. she's ready to own everybody. And she talks about how she studies black magic. So these, these two are deep in the dark magical arts here. And so while they're sitting there having a picnic, they both spot this flying object, which is the Omega Hedron, that lands at their uh, picnic site. So it actually lands right where they can grab it. And um, when Selena picks it up, she she talks about how she's outgrown Nigel now. So immediately she re- she recognizes that this little spinny ball of light is her way to world domination. <laughs> um, of course, right? It's it's not some random glowy toy. It's a power source that's magic. Yet somehow, I maybe it spoke to her. I don't know how she realized this, uh, but but she does. And what's interesting about uh, this scene is that she takes the Megahedron into the car because I guess she felt like it was some sort of power source. She wanted to kind of experiment with it and find out what it did. And so they use this scene as a way to explain why Superman was not going to be in this story. And and we'll talk later about kind of why Christopher Reeve wasn't in it and what his appearance would have been like. But in the scene when she's in the car, there's actually a, a news reporter who's talking about the news of the day. And, and the news says, the president confirmed reports that Superman has indeed embarked on a special peace-seeking mission to a galaxy scientists estimate maybe several hundred trillion light years away. So immediately we know, okay, Superman's not in this story because he's he's way, 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 way far he's away. He's really far. <laughs> they they wanted to make sure to tell the he's audience. He's so far away. He's, he is, he is, there's no way he's coming to, to save the day here. So that's sort of the setup as to why Superman's not there. And I also thought it was interesting in this scene that there's a car radio commercial that's talking about TWA that says, uh, yeah. that's TWA never has flying been easier. And of course, TWA stands for Transworld Airlines, which is now a defunct airline that nobody flies on anymore. But I thought it was interesting because I wondered if that was sort of a connection to flying um, that might have been some kind of connection to Supergirl and the fact that she would fly. And I also wondered if it was some kind of product placement. Um, oh, yeah. There, uh, well, first of all, yeah, I thought that like never has flying been easier unless you can do it because of the sun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, but the product placement is crazy in this movie. I, I suddenly like had this urge for Popeye's chicken and I didn't know why. Yeah, I, I, want, I wanted to drink an A&W root beer because <laughs> there was A&W stuff all over this movie. Um, there was. Oh, my uh, God. Eddie, the, truck, the trucker that kind of harasses uh, Supergirl at one point, he's wearing an A&W shirt. And there's an A&W vending machine on the campus at the Midvale School. And Supergirl actually gets thrown into it later in, in a fight. So there's a yeah. lot of A&W stuff going on. Just root beer and chicken everywhere. Um, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> you know, let's go have some right now. Um, so finally, you know, the Omega Hedron is on Earth. Uh, Selena has it. And now Supergirl arrives. And she magically can change clothes. Like, this is one of her powers. Um, she comes through inner space to outer space, gets to Earth, and she can magically change wardrobe, which I would love that power. Um, it's totally nonsensical, but it happens in the movies with Christopher Reeve, too. So, And I think I've seen comics where, like, the panel is like, 
him going from Clark Kent to Superman and it's in one panel. So I think they were trying to achieve that effect, but it just, it looks like it is a magical power. Yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, and I understand like, even if you can change clothes really fast, you'd have to have the clothes in the first place. Right. Like, so are you walking around holding other clothes in a bag that we don't see? I don't. Well, may- um, maybe in this instance, in this scene, when she first appears on Earth, maybe the suit is in the little spaceship. That's possible. Maybe. But also that it, that it looks exactly like Superman's, like, like, were they, you know, communicating? Like, okay, this is what I wear. So right. you might want to wear something similar. Yeah. Because um, she, <laughs> later she has a line about how, you know, this isn't a costume. These are my clothes. And I'm like, really? Those are your clothes that we've never seen you wear except for right now when you're on Earth. But, like, you never wore it otherwise? And okay, it's, great. It's t- it totally doesn't fit the attire that everybody else in Argo City wears. Like, it's not a cultural type thing. Nobody else was wearing this kind of stuff. No, not at all. Um, and thank goodness that this changed because uh, an early version of the costume included a headband that looked like, you know, made Supergirl look like she was ready to aerobicize. Yeah, there, um, there are some comics where she has the headband and I don't know which one came first. I don't know if the movie came first and then the comics adopted it or if it was in the comics and then the movie people wanted to use that look, but yeah, I, I'm not a fan of the headband Supergirl at all. No, it's like let her hair loose, or if you want to get her hair out of her face, let her wear it, have a scrunchie. That's fine. <laughs> right. Headbands are unacceptable. <laughs> well, it, was, yes. it was the 80s, though. It, it, I guess, yeah. It's like <laughs> it's all Olivia Newton John's fault. <laughs> um, but so Supergirl, she has this outfit on magically, and she flies up out of the water with dry hair and completely dry clothes. Um, Because apparently that's how fast she can fly, that she dries herself off. And according to uh, IMDb, again, um, and confirmed by the audio commentary on the DVD, the shot of her flying up out of the water was achieved with a picture of Helen Slater pasted on a wooden cutout. So they were really splurging on the special effects budget. (laughs) Um, They must not have had another way to do it, and that was kind of the best. And it looks fairly convincing. I don't know. I, I, I probably could go... And find that exact moment, and you could probably tell. But when it's in motion, it's, it's pretty seamless. So I'll, I'll oh, give yeah. I'll give him credit for that. No, it, it did look good. But then, like when you see her coming down to the ground, you could totally see wires, um, which is, you know, was pretty. I was like, oh, there they are. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, but so she's. I and I actually really love this scene and how she's introduced um, as she's exploring her new abilities. And see, I hesitate to call them new abilities because she she's exploring them and it's really fun. Like she can crush a rock. She has heat vision and she can apparently use heat vision to make a flower bloom even when it's not connected to its roots anymore and has no water. Um, makes total sense. Makes total sense. But like then she goes through the rest of the film using other powers that she doesn't experiment with and can just kind of use them and control them. As if she's always had them. Yeah, she has no learning curve whatsoever. She doesn't have to figure this out. It's just immediate control of the powers. Yeah, and it's it's, it's very strange. Um, Especially since, like, you know, in Argo City, she does not have these powers. And, yeah, so you do kind of wonder if there is any, you know, assistance because of Superman. Um, And maybe somehow having heard what he's up to. Um, Yeah, she might have known that he had those powers, but... Yeah, and maybe she had some sort of training, again, in the little spaceship. Maybe there was a thing that taught her how to do it and how to control it. <laughs> but it's it's weird because she, 
um, even though she's able to control all those other powers, the, the floating sort of startles her. Well, yeah, because she it's it's interesting. That's the thing she has trouble with, because also with the the rock, like she crushes a rock, but she kind of feels like she can do that. Like she picks up a rock kind of expecting to crush it. It's very strange. Mm-hmm. But so it leads, you know, we see this whole sequence of her, you know, enjoying her flowers flying. And it's actually really, really graceful. And that is on purpose. On the uh, audio commentary, the director refers to her flying as an aerial ballet. Which I did notice, having watched this, uh, having rewatched it for the first time since I was 10, um, it was cool to see her embracing these powers in a very feminine way. You know, it's like you would fly differently as a young woman. Um, and it's cool that they kind of had that difference. And she still has this, you know, strength and, and speed and flying abilities, but it's approached a little bit differently. And I kind of like that. And I actually like the flying more in this movie than any of the Christopher Reeve movies. I think it's actually more believable in this movie because they do a lot of outside flying. And I'm trying to think now with the Christopher Reeve movies, I think with those movies, they do a lot more with the front process effect with the screens. And Mm -hmm. and even in Superman four, they're reusing a lot of flying scenes. So they're not even shooting new stuff for Superman 4 just to save money. So this movie, they were actually able to do a lot more with the flying. And to me, it looks the best out of any of these movies from that era. And even in the, the you know, as she, whenever she flies and whenever she lands, it seems more organic. Like it, you know, she, she kind of, the way she holds her legs, the way she, like it seems like if you could fly as a power, that's how you do it. Yeah, and I even love that there are some shots where she's like holding her arms out and just kind of kind of going and it's almost like she's going with the wind. And I love that. It's almost like she's kind of cruising and she enjoys it more. And there's even uh one sequence during the flying when she kind of s- starts flying for the first time where she's flying over a herd of running horses. And that is actually done later in Superman Birthright. That's that's kind of a little sequence that Superman does a similar flying uh, over some animals. And you actually see that in Man of Steel when Superman learns to fly for the first time as well. So I don't know if they would have borrowed that from Supergirl the movie, but it it is kind of a running thing now that you see one of the, <laughs> the House of L doing a similar uh, flight. And from there, we get introduced to Selena's evil lair. And this is a really creepy place to live. It seems like this is where they live. This is where they hang out. It's in an abandoned amusement park. So I guess she figures I want to be an evil world dominating person. I got to live in a really creepy place. (laughs) So we get introduced to where they live. And when I say they, uh, I'm also talking about uh, Selena's Sister, friend, sidekick, we don't really know, but there's this other chick there named Bianca. And Bianca talks about how they don't have a lot of money to pay their bills and flat out tells us that they are witches. So for some reason, they're living, I guess maybe that's why they're living in the abandoned amusement park because they can't pay their bills and this place is maybe free. Yeah, they're like, they're totally squatting. I actually kind of like that they um, they keep things so down to earth. Like in this crazy movie where there are witches and an omegahedron, they have the practical problem of they can't pay their bills. <laughs> yes. Like, it's pretty interesting that like, you know, that's the problem that, that Bianca's looking at. Right. 
But I kind of thought it was cool that they lived in an abandoned amusement park. Um, they happen to live like in a very creepy ride. But I'm like, if I lived in an amusement park, that would be pretty cool. It is kind of fun that there is one scene where Bianca enters the room while she's sitting in like the car that's on yes. the ride. Mm-hmm. That, that, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. That would be kind of fun to live somewhere <laughs> where you have this little, um, this little car that goes through your house. So that, that is kind of fun. Totally. And once we're introduced to the evil lair, we then go to Supergirl arriving in Midvale for the first time, and she she gets there because there's a connection between her little watch bracelet thing uh, to the Omega Hedron. And it lights up when she's kind of close by. It's almost like a like a GPS, uh, if you if you want to think about it. That's kind of how I thought about it. Um, so she lands in the street of in kind of I guess the main street of Midvale. And when she gets there, she's sort of, I mean, not sort of, genuinely sexually harassed by some truckers who show up. Uh, Super one is, creepy. <laughs> yeah, one is named Eddie, and he's—I know this guy, Eddie, the trucker from—I uh, know him as Max Headroom from yes. the '80s. Uh, His—it's an actor named Matt Furrer, which is really hard to say. Furrer. Um, <laughs> um, and Kara doesn't tolerate the the harassment, which is really awesome. She she smacks one of them, which I was surprised that. The dude still had bones that were connected because it should have broken <laughs> his bones. Um, she actually squeezes and cracks Eddie's jaw and uses her super breath to blow him into a fence. And when she uh, has to approach uh, this other trucker named Billy, she uses her heat vision on him on his knife and kicks him into the air. So she does not tolerate these these truckers messing with her, which is really mm. kind of awesome. Yeah, no, it's totally awesome to watch. But also I love that she kind of gives them a chance to knock it off. Like, she's like, why are you doing this? Like, she's yeah. trying to reason with them first. And then they continue to be douchebags. So she's like, not having it. Yes, that is a good, good point. And so <laughs> Max Headroom, Eddie, uh, asks <laughs> Kara if she's Superman's best friend. And she corrects him by saying, no, I'm actually his cousin. So there's, <laughs> there. <laughs> I guess maybe she's not... She's not a friend of her cousin. She's just the cousin. They don't have any relationship. I don't know. But yeah. she, she does make a point to say, you know, I am his cousin. So there's that distinction there. And Well, what's what's funny is that she's ask, he's asking her, like, as a joke, are you Superman's best friend? Like, ha-ha. And it's like, no, actually, I'm his cousin. Like, yeah. no, we're actually related. Right. Like, there's, there's like a, no, this is serious. There's it's an actual reason why I'm wearing this attire. And speaking of the attire, what I like about the scene is just somebody who likes to shoot video is that there's a really cool shot of just her boots and her cape while she's kind of faced with these truckers. And I love that shot. It's used later Mm -hmm. again uh, when she goes up against Selena and Bianca at the amusement park. But I really like that because it's it's just a cool image. It's uh, very iconic to see her her cape kind of there and her standing strong. So I really like that that shot. Yeah, it does look cool, and it's very you know obviously distinct from Superman. Um, yes, as very well. Much. So it's it's very clearly you know exactly who that is from that shot. It's great, right? So from there we go to a party at Selena's. Selena has <laughs> she has no money apparently, but she's having all her peeps over for this party, and um, I guess she has them come over because she wants to create foot soldiers. And you sort of see that later in the movie when she 
is on her way to world domination. She does have what appear to be foot soldiers. So I guess the people at the party um, are what she uses to get those people. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of magical tricks that are happening at this party because I guess it's a a party full of witches. I guess she invites magician party. Yeah, what? she she invites all of her magical people over, and Selena is able to light Nigel's cigarette with her finger. And I wondered if that was because of the Megahedron. I, I, I don't know if she's getting... Jeannot on the DVD commentary talked about how it sort of amplified things. So I wondered if her having the little spinny ball of light was amplifying her magical powers. <laughs> so she was able to do more without really kind of trying. Um, and she even makes one of the partygoers eat a... Look like a scorpion to me. Some weird, gross little bug. Some kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, and it turns her upside... She turns this chick upside down and spins her around in the party. And she's just kind of abusing these powers at her party, which is kind of a, a terrible thing to do as a host. I wouldn't want to go to a party <laughs> and then get tortured. You're kind of the worst host ever, Selena. Worst host. So after that, you know, hop in witch party, um, we go back to... Supergirl, um, who, you know, because what are you going to do after you're, you know, sexually harassed by creepy truckers? You have to rest. So she ends up in this forest where she's woken up by a bunny rabbit, which is such a cute little shot of like Supergirl kind of in the grass and little bunny hops up. Um, But actually, it turns out to be that she's near a baseball field. A baseball lands near her um, and she follows the action to a softball game that Lucy Lane is playing. So we were introduced to the Midvale High School um, softball team and Lucy Lane as a character. And according to the DVD, DVD commentary, uh, Demi Moore actually read for the part of uh, Lucy Lane, which, was, which is interesting. Um, and it gives her the idea of becoming a Midvale student to kind of blend in until she can find the Omegahedron. So... Kara kind of examines their uniforms and magically uses her, you know, <laughs> clothes changing powers <laughs> to create clothes and adds a brown wig um, by walking by some trees. Um, That's how I get dressed every day. I don't know about anybody else. Totally, totally. So then after, you know, we see her change clothes, she goes to the school and we meet Mr. Danvers, um, Midvale's principal. And some websites refer to him as the dean, um, but he's referred to as the principal in the movie. Yeah, I'm not, um, I'm not totally clear on, is this a high school or is this a college? I'm not, I, I think Kara is supposed to be a teenager. Yeah, it ver- it seems like high school. And, and for some reason, it, it seems like a, I mean, they have uniforms, so it's like a private school. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a boarding it, school kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's probably some kind of boarding high school and obviously, you know, being named Mr. Danvers, it's an obvious homage to uh, Kara Zorel's adopted family in the comics. Um, and in the upcoming TV show, you know, she's going to be a foster daughter to the Danvers as well. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and he gets mad. I love that moment. He gets mad um, that Kara doesn't knock before coming into his office. So she goes out of the office, knocks, and then comes in again, which is really cute. It is really cute. And then <laughs> he asks her, who on earth are you? And then he, she sees a poster of Robert E. Lee on the wall, like a historical poster, and she decides that her name is Lee, Linda Lee. So obviously she got the last name from the poster. Where she got Linda from, who knows? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's so weird to me that she would be named after 
a commander in the Confederate Army in during the Civil War. But I guess that's yeah. a, an, an obvious way to make her see that is if uh, there's a historical figure on the, the wall in the school. I, I guess that sort of makes sense, but it, it still makes me laugh. Yeah, if you need to have like a visual. And also, I do love that she, she uh, the way she answered the question, because he goes, who on earth are you? And she's like, on earth, I'm Linda Lee. Um, <laughs> so she's very directly answering his question. But then there's also a second part to that, which is, in Argo City, I'm Kara Zor-El. So <laughs> right, right. When he leaves the room for a second, she fakes a letter of recommendation. She like speeds around the office typing her own letter of recommendation. It's actually from- kind of a cool little moment. I like yeah. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, a letter of recommendation from her cousin, Clark Kent. Um, <laughs> so that is a weird moment, too, because uh, it shows quick thinking on her part. But at the same time, it's like so she can type in English and she can she knows about letters of recommendation. Like she knows that the school would require that. And <laughs> she knows like, how to format it and what to say in it. Yeah, it's 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 very strange that that's like the thing that pops into her head with no prompting, but whatever. Um, so Nigel comes into Principal Danvers' office, so apparently he's a teacher there. Very convenient. Mm-hmm. Um, and later we see that he's a math teacher, which is also hilarious because she sucks at math. Um, but not here, apparently. No, <laughs> not on Earth. On Earth, she's amazing at math. On her, you know, in her home city, not so much. Um, but that's because Earth kids are dumb, apparently. <laughs> um, we certainly aren't studying, you know, six, you know, what is it? Six degree six, geometry? Six dimensional? Six dimensional geometry. I don't even know what that is. I'd have to look that up. <laughs> that sounds like a fake thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so then we get uh, Linda Lee, as she's now calling herself, meeting Lucy Lane. And now this is where her naivete kind of also like trips me up a bit because, yeah, she can write a letter of recommendation and she can do all this quick thinking on her feet, but she doesn't know what a handshake is. And she can't really, you know, um, it's kind of a weird bit of world building like or, or character building. Like, okay, either she knows about Earth or she doesn't. Pick one. Yeah, it's very but inconsistent. It is. Um, so... Principal Danvers, um, there's this bit with where he, like, you know, goofs up Linda's and Lucy's names because of the double L's. Um, but then through that, you know, bumbling bit of conversation, he makes the connection that Linda's cousin and Lucy's sister both work at the Daily Planet. So it's like, oh, this is, you know, Lois Lane's sister. Oh, she works with Clark Kent, which reveals that to Kara. And I love, as, as I'm a huge Lo- Lois Lane fan, and I love that he talks about how Lucy's sister is always calling and bothering him. <laughs> I would love to know what Lois is calling him about. Like, what are those conversations like? So Seriously. I, I enjoyed that comment. And, and, and part of it, I, like, I wonder if it's about her sister, and then part of it is, like, is the school shady? Like, what, what kind of story is she trying to uncover? Yeah, she's probably trying to get some truth about some shady goings on there um and i think it's actually really interesting that um as lucy talks to linda she kind of prides herself on the fact that her sister has something going with the big guy you know aka superman um when they you know talk you know she sees a poster on the wall of superman like clearly lucy lane is a big fan knows that her sister has a connection to him and is super proud to brag about that fact 
And she even says, you know, I'll introduce him to you if you're, you know, if you play your cards right. I probably um, would, too, if I knew Superman. <laughs> I'd be telling everybody. It's true. Um, so, yeah, again, in their dorm room, we have, like, more product placement. Um, so we've got some Frosted Flakes lying around. Um, <laughs> there's a picture of this guy in, in military dress that looks kind of like Warren Beatty. And I wonder if there's a connection to Faye Dunaway through Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, I, I wondered if that was intentional. Because to me, that looks like Warren Beatty. I don't know if that's true, but yeah. that's what it looks like. Someone who's listening, find that out. See who's in that photo. And then, of course, I love that you know she's reading a comic when she first meets Linda. So you see the Incredible Hulk in the panels there. But that's um, so weird. They ne- Back in the 80s, I guess they had no sense to... Oh, that's a Marvel comic. We maybe should not put a Marvel comic in a DC film. Like, there's no synergy happening there at all. But, yeah, no. But, but you can clearly same- see that it's the Incredible Hulk because there's a big green guy in some of those panels. Oh, totally. But then, you know, maybe back in the day there wasn't this delineation, you know? Comics are comics. And maybe in their universe... Incredible Hulk is the fictional character, but then like Superman is the real is a real guy. <laughs> yeah, so maybe they don't have Superman comics in this universe because Superman is a real like maybe they don't have stories based. I don't know. It's it, that's actually pretty funny. That reminds me of um, I don't know if you've seen Stand by Me the movie a um, long time ago. Yeah, and like one, it's one of my favorite movies. But one of the they had this argument among themselves about like who would win in a fight, Superman or Mighty Mouse, <laughs> and the argument is that's ridiculous. Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. There's no way that a, a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Um, anyway, sorry about that. Um, yeah, so, you know, obviously Lucy totally playing up the fact that she has a connection to Superman. So now, according to uh, Janot on the DVD audio commentary again, there were two sequences in various drafts that involved Superman actually being in the movie rather than just a poster on the wall. And one of them was Superman welcoming his cousin to Earth. Um, and he called it a glorious sequence because the two of them would have flown around together. But the other version had Superman losing his powers, which causes him to become an old man because he's lost his immortality and Supergirl has to save him. Um, actually, both of those would have made really interesting stories. And I kind of <laughs> wish he would have stuck with one of those. Yeah, I really wish we had been able to have a sequence where Superman and Supergirl were flying together. That would have been really awesome. So I'm, yeah. I'm sorry that never panned out. And I was thinking about the Superman losing his powers scenario because since this comes between Superman 3 and Superman 4, like if they didn't want to make a Superman 4, like they put it off for a while because <laughs> uh, yeah. it doesn't happen until a couple of years after Supergirl. But that's, I mean, that would be maybe kind of a depressing story to end on Superman. But if they wanted to end Superman movies, they, that's the way you could do it is to have him lose his powers and become an old man and die <laughs> that sounds really depressing i wouldn't want to see that movie i'm, ju- I'm just kidding <laughs> way now, to make n- everyone cry now now that i think about that i don't want to see that movie anymore after Li- uh linda lee and lucy meet for the first time there's a random scene where selena comes to the school and she and B- bianca are there it's, it's very strange i think it's only really there for uh her to see uh who bianca calls the landscape guy. So we get introduced to this guy who is working in the yard. And it's also for uh, a way to have 
Kara or Linda in this scene to figure out where the Omega Hedron is. She sees uh, Bianca and Selena in the car near the school. And this is the scene where Kara shows her smarts. She answers a math question that's the answer to the question is 5,271,009,010. So <laughs> you see that the superpowers are um, making her smarter. Then there is a scene uh, where the girls are playing field hockey, which is a thing I never did in school, but apparently in the 80s, this was pretty popular. Oh, yeah. I, told, I, I know I have friends who, who, or relatives rather, who are older than me who used to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in this scenario, Lucy must not be very popular. She's got some bullies who want to hit her with this, uh, with the field hockey puck ball i don't know i've never played field hockey i don't know these terms um but basically the bullies try to attack her and kara or linda in this scenario jumps in front of lucy to uh prevent her from being hit by the ball and uh there's also another scenario with the same bullies who are trying an- another attack on uh the girls in the shower where um, they're in the locker room kind of after the field hockey practice or the game or whatever. And so they're trying something else. And uh, Linda slash Kara hears what they're doing and kind of thwarts their plans with her x-ray vision and her um, heat vision uh, so that they don't mess with everybody in the shower and actually embarrasses the bullies. The bullies run out of there with their heads down and and embarrassed. Soaking wet. (laughs) Yes. So it's very cool that she stands up for Lucy in all of those scenarios. And uh, I guess we'll go on to the really, I mean, if we thought the science was crazy, this rationale is even crazier. So Selena's love potion, um, because she is fascinated by this landscape guy. And so she brews a love potion and the potion ingredients are apparently a spider trapped in a nutshell. But the landscape guy shows up. She calls him for like some fake job. And Selena puts some of the potion into a drink for him. Um, and actually a fun fact is that John Travolta was approached to play landscape guy, which is interesting and kind of would have worked, I think. <laughs> if you just need like an attractive dumb dude. Um, no, I love you, John Travolta, wherever you are. Um, but uh, landscape guy escapes because... Once you're basically given a date rape spell um, and left unconscious in a random amusement park, that's like the last place you want to be when you wake up kind of drugged and groggy. Um, So he got out of there. And Selena finds him in a mirror, kind of like uh, the evil queen in Snow White. She always uses a mirror to, um, to check up on people. And on the DVD commentary, Janelle actually talks about the similarities that the movie has to both Snow White uh, as well as The Wizard of Oz. And they were, you know, aware of both of those things during the shoot. And, you know, he's walking around aimlessly like he's drunk. And Selena uses the Omega Hedron to control a bulldozer, to grab him in the street like a toy in one of those, like, claw machines that you have to, like, <laughs> grab a toy out of it, which I thought was hilarious. And then Lucy, Linda, and Jimmy Olsen, whom she introduces uh, Linda to, um, they are, you know, watching all of this happen. The unmanned bulldozer is causing all this damage in the street. And um, Linda goes to change into Supergirl. And she busts open the water tower to put out some, you know, fires, keep it away from the gasoline. All this mayhem is happening. And Selena and Bianca are watching this. And then Bianca says, what is that? A storm dragon? And then Selena says... A super girl. <laughs> um, 
so that's like the first time that we hear her being referred to as Supergirl, which I think is just such a stretch. Um, <laughs> but uh, Supergirl takes the part of the bulldozer with the landscape guy in it and the other part with Lucy, um, who's still like she was trying to stop it herself, actually. She tried to control the runaway bulldozer, couldn't. She gets knocked out. So she's still in the bulldozer part. And it just kind um, of hits a, hits a wall to stop. Yeah, yeah. But then that love potion is still in his system, and the love potion's entire purpose is to make him fall in love with the first person he sees. And so rather than it being Selena, it turns out to be Linda, who by this point has changed back into her school uniform, and he falls desperately in love with her and starts spouting a lot of poetry um, (laughs) and using a lot of these and thous randomly. Mm -hmm. Um, Apparently, you know, she must have x-rayed him with her vision or something because she tells him that he doesn't have any broken bones. We don't really see that happen, but um, it can be assumed because she does have that power. Um, Then he kisses her and she says she has to go and she runs off all freaked out. But then, and this is that part that I mentioned earlier, she goes back to the dorm and practices kissing in the mirror. So it's kind of unclear, like, how young she's supposed to be and how inexperienced and and naive she's supposed to be, even by Argo City standards. Yeah, it's a nice little character beat for her, but it is still weird that they don't really stick to the rules of what she knows and what she doesn't know. Yeah. Well, after that whole bit where she saves the townspeople, we go back to Selena, who summons some black magic with the Omega Hedron, and it destroys some stuff in the woods and on the school campus on their way to find Supergirl. So she's using this thing that she she summons it by saying power of shadow. So she uh, sends this thing after Supergirl. And so Supergirl has this fight with this invisible thing at the school. And in order to defeat this shadow, it's kind of strange. She grabs this lamppost, takes it into a lightning storm. It becomes kind of all electric and some somehow she uses the lightning in the post to make the shadow go away. It's very unclear. Uh, but all that to say she defeats this shadow thing that Selena has sent after her. Um, and it's weird. She goes back to the dorm after the fight's over, and she's wearing her costume. Like, why didn't you use your magic magical quick change power there? Yeah. <laughs> that didn't true. make any kind of sense. Um, so after the big fight with the uh, power of shadow creature she actually goes to Selena's evil lair. Through her bracelet, she finds the hideout. And uh, and she's able to do that because Selena lifts the, the lead covering. She keeps the Omega Hedron in this thing that's covered by lead. And so that prevents Supergirl from being able to find it. So when she does that, she's able to find the amusement park. And when she's there, the landscape guy follows Linda slash Supergirl, to the lair with chocolates and flowers. And he he wants to, you know, kind of continue the connection that they had had earlier. He tries to pick her up, which is really funny because since she's the girl of steel, he can't lift her. She She's not because she's heavy, but because she's made of steel. Yeah, um, super dense. Right. So he finally, we finally learn in this scene that his name is Ethan, so we can stop calling him landscape guy. Uh, <laughs> he asks her to marry him because he still hopped up on this love potion. Um, and in this moment, Selena and Bianca show up, and Selena uh, uses her magic to make the ride that Linda and Ethan are on spin around really quickly. And when it stops, Ethan's still on the ride, but Linda disappears and quickly changes into Supergirl. So she has a confrontation as Supergirl with the villains. 
And to kind of make her upset, Selena puts Ethan in the bumper car area and the, the cars are <laughs> so stupid. The, the cars are like chasing after him. And all he really has to do is get in the car and jump off. Like it's not. It took him a long time to figure that out. Yeah, it's not really that dangerous. I mean, you can figure <laughs> out a way out of that without having to get Supergirl to save you. But um, Supergirl ends up picking the bumper car that Ethan is in and flies away with him. Totally inconspicuously. <laughs> yeah. Uh, nothing strange at all about a large bumper car flying through the air. Nope. Um, so eventually they do land. Um, and Selena, because she has nothing better to do with her time while she's trying to, like, have world domination than to go after this guy, she magically sends a coconut to where they are so it knocks Ethan out. And Supergirl uses that coconut to creepily feed Ethan. Yeah, she weird. kind of dips her fingers into the water, into the coconut water, and then touches his lips with it ever so gently. And I'm like, you're being super creepy right now. <laughs> um, so meanwhile, Nigel opens the nutshell of the love spell and lets the spider out. But that doesn't break the spell, it seems, um, because Ethan still loves Linda Lee. Unless they developed a deep connection somewhere in that time, he still loves her because of the spell, which is really random and confusing. Um, but Supergirl kisses Ethan and that makes him realize she's the Linda he loves. So she doesn't even have glasses like Clark Kent does. It's her face. It's her same face. Mm -hmm. You'd think that if he actually loved her so desperately, he'd know her face in a different outfit and a wig. Well, he was kind of hopped up on a, a love potion. So maybe that distracted him a little bit. I, I I'll give know. him the benefit of doubt. <laughs> well, you can do that. I prefer to think he's an idiot. Um, but then Selena actually has to enlist Nigel's help, which is like the last thing she wants to do. So Nigel has the Barunde wand, um, which is apparently pure unadulterated evil um, that he uses while uh, Selena uses the Omega Hedron. So their magic together snatches uh, Ethan away from Supergirl and into the amusement park lair. And Selena kisses Nigel to distract him while she steals the evil Barunde wand. Um, she uses it on him to make him look older and dirtier. And then all of a sudden, a mountain with a castle or fortress thing on top appears in Midvale that she has created. Um, Supergirl flies to the top, goes in, finds Ethan chained up, but she can't rescue him because she bumps into and gets trapped in an invisible barrier. Oopsie. <laughs> so Selena forces Supergirl to watch her kiss Ethan in just the most, like, catty female yeah, moment ever. That's cold. <laughs> um, and then the barrier she's trapped in flattens her into, like, a plexiglass playing card. And she starts, you know, flipping around and ends up in the Phantom Zone. Um, now, how does Selena know about the Phantom Zone or how to get Supergirl there? Like, that, all of a sudden, she has this knowledge of that. That's so unclear. I guess maybe the Omega Hadron told her that. Matter or something. Matter. <laughs> so when she's carted off in the thing that actually looks like the Phantom Zone from the the Superman films with Christopher Reeve, she mm -hmm. actually we actually get to see the Phantom Zone this time. Um, but in the Phantom Zone, she doesn't have her power. She fails it in an attempt to fly, and she bleeds when she tries to crush a rock. And that's kind of a callback to when she first appears on Earth, and she's able to crush the rock there. Um, so she doesn't have any powers. 
and she is rescued by a mysterious figure who ends up being Zaltar, and he grabs her out of this muddy, goopy-looking stuff, and Jeannot on the DVD commentary calls it the gook. So she's in the Phantom Zone with Zaltar now, who was confined there because of his mistake in Argo City where he let the Omegahedron get out. And um, <laughs> so uh, that's his punishment. And Supergirl and Zaltar try to escape the Phantom Zone. Uh, Supergirl says, you know, she cleverly and smartly and rightly says, if there's a way in, there's a way out. That only makes sense. And so to try to escape, they go towards this thing called the Quantum Vortex, which is this blue and red uh, swirly tornado-looking wormhole thing. And in the commentary, Jeannot says that the red part of it was supposed to be symbolic of hell. And it's... I mean, it looks really scary. It um, really does. <laughs> which is pretty good effects for uh, back in that day. And while this is happening, Selena and Bianca can see them at the quantum vortex thing while they're hanging out in their hideout. And uh, they see that it's Supergirl in the Phantom Zone trying to escape. And while uh, Supergirl and Zoltar are climbing up, there's this like burst of light that comes out and it knocks Zoltar down. So he falls below Kara. Um, and Supergirl tries to tries to save him and says, come with me. And it's really kind of heartbreaking moment. And Zoltar yeah. says, I am with you. And it's really dramatic and sad. And with that, he falls down the vortex and he presumably dies. So she's all alone in the Phantom Zone. And yeah. that loss of Zoltar, I think re-inspires Kara because she she it's a great moment from Helen Slater she stands up really heroically with her cape blowing in the wind and um her facial expressions change and she looks really determined so I I, I very much like that moment in the movie yeah no it, it is a great moment um and it's funny because this whole thing where like clearly he's kind of like the um Obi-Wan Kenobi for her right mm -hmm. like um, but it's interesting to me how whenever there's a female heroine, there always has to be like an older white dude to show her the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we could have a whole like feminist discussion about that at another time. But like, for example, like, you know, Buffy has a watcher, you know, baby doll in Sucker Punch has like that, you know, mysterious dude, um, bus driver, um, the bride and kill Bill has Bill. So it's it's interesting that even Supergirl has this um, kind of men, older mentor in in Zaltar. Um, well, and that's part of the hero's journey, the monomyth uh, from Joseph Campbell, that there is usually a, like a, a, a wise old sage that instructs the hero. So that's part of a hero's journey. But yeah, sometimes it is an older white man with a with a younger lady. Yeah, and yeah, it's just like so. Uh, can a woman be that? You know older person showing somebody the way like you uh, it's it's rarer that you have like an older knowledgeable woman telling somebody hey this is how you do things um but in any case uh the plot thickens because now that selena has gotten this mountain with this fortress on top she's well on her way to taking over the world um <laughs> Because Supergirl's in the Phantom Zone, Selena takes over Midvale, uh, complete with the foot soldiers that she rounded up at the party. <laughs> um, and the townspeople, led by Lucy Lane, are not thrilled. Um, they've got a protest going on, which I don't know how they got that together and how they knew she was taking over the world. Like It's like they were prepared to meet her as she's driving around in her limo. And I love um, that her sign says, Dorm says no to Selena. 
Like she doesn't. Yeah. Selena doesn't care about the the girls in the dorm. <laughs> she could care less about them. Yeah, it's like this isn't a political thing. Like <laughs> Selena does not give a crap about your signs. And yeah, where is the law enforcement? Like where are the police dealing with this? <laughs> What's the government doing while she's like having this mountain pop up? And I, I guess this? she's already taken over the government. I don't know. Uh, um, but Jimmy and Jimmy Olsen and Lucy Lane get taken by Selena's forces uh, because they let it be known that uh, they know Linda, a.k.a. the wimp. So now on Selena's mountain in her castle, uh, Jimmy, Lucy and Nigel are imprisoned in cages that are hung from the ceiling as insurance, which I think is crazy because like the they're like over these spikes but the spikes are really far apart like if they fell they're falling in a metal sphere and could easily go around the spikes like it wasn't particularly dangerous but whatever (laughs) um so she's plotting world domination and um now, <laughs> yeah, I'm just looking at this photo of Faye Dunaway in these amazing cat eye glasses. They're amazing. <laughs> it's just they're they're just so fabulous. It's like no matter what you're you know you're you're trying to take over the world. There's no reason why you can't be fashionable about she's fashionable a, she's about a it. Very glamorous witch. Oh my god. Um, now Supergirl comes flying out of the vortex into Selena's hideout. Uh, Selena threatens her friends right in front of her. Um, now she could just fly or use her super speed or her strength to set them free, but instead she uses her freeze breath to, you know, make the hot irons underneath them cold uh, so they'll break. Um, and everyone falls to the floor and their cages break. Like it, it just seems like a waste of her powers, but whatever. (laughs) Yeah, I I would have chosen a, a different use of my powers there if I had been Supergirl. Totally. Once everybody, once all the uh, the prisoners are free, Supergirl has her final confrontation with Selena. And it's really interesting in this movie that Selena in this last fight is dressed in all white. And you would think an evil witch would she, you know, in, in the movie she wears black a fair bit. And Jeannot actually explains in the audio commentary that she's wearing white because he wanted Selena to be the most beautiful and the most powerful she had ever been. And in his words, he, he said it was almost like a wedding. And huh. it's interesting that Bianca is the one who is wearing black because in, in my brain, villains wear black. So uh, it's interesting that uh, Selena is actually wearing the white there. Yeah. Um, she uses, uh, Selena uses her magic wand to cause the floor to wobble. And this is a weird, another one of those weird cases where the the powers aren't used correctly. It's very strange. Like, why doesn't Supergirl hover over the floor floor there? That that would have been my, if I was writing or directing this, I would be like, well, the floor is not going to matter for her. She can fly. Uh, right. So it doesn't matter if she's wobbling on the floor. And I actually think Man of Steel did a good job with this because uh, there's a fight between Superman and Zod where the, f- the floor in this building collapses underneath Superman and he hovers and flies out. So I think if if I were to do this Supergirl scene again, that's how I would treat it. Um, <laughs> totally. No, it makes sense. Yeah, and Ethan is in this scene this whole time uh, while they're having this big confrontation and he warns Supergirl of a falling statue which is about to hit her, which is also a little weird because Supergirl wouldn't have been hurt by that. So it's weird that they have him do that but I guess it's to show like he has feelings for her and he cares about her and he's yeah. trying, he's trying to help 
Um, and I kind of love that he is the this movie's, you know, useless girlfriend. Yeah. Like he's totally he's totally the the movie girlfriend who's only there to worry about the hero. Right. Which is kind of a nice twist. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Um, and in this scene, Bianca, the sidekick, wants out. She's like, ah, I'm, I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> Things are getting weird. <laughs> but uh, Selena's not having it. She magically pins her to a wall and forces her to stay. So Bianca's in it to win it now. She cannot <laughs> leave. Um, and so Selena, at this point, is uh, needing to really try to destroy Supergirl. So she calls out, power of shadow, destroy her. And it summons this like <laughs> mythological... By the power of grace, God. Yes, exactly. It, it, it summons this creature, and she can, can kind of control it like a puppet or a voodoo doll. She can make it do things to Supergirl. And in the audio commentary, I thought it was interesting that Jeannot, the director, refers to the creature as looking like the one from Disney's Fantasia, which I think is pronounced Schoenborg. And it's found in the sequence Night on Bald Mountain. So if you look at that, oh, they yeah. they do kind of look the same. So I think mm-hmm. they took a little inspiration from Fantasia there. And just when Supergirl is about to give up after she's being kind of twisted and mangled by this creature, she hears Zaltar's voice somehow and it encourages her. And she becomes heroic and, and fights back. And she ends up, the way that the fight goes down where she defeats selena and bianca is that she uses her super speed and her flight and she spins them up into a tornado and throws them into the mirror and i guess sends them to the phantom zone and Jeannot actually said in the commentary that the tornado was used in the final fight because it's a callback to what kills zaltar so i I like that they've thought that through and tried to try to make that kind of poetic so to resolve all of that after Selena and Bianca are done away with, Ethan gives Supergirl the Omega Hedron, which is what she's been after the whole time that she's been on Earth. And he tells her that he knows that she's Linda. And there's a random <laughs> kiss between Jimmy and Lucy. And <laughs> uh, the door is magically open somehow. And Supergirl flies out. And because Selena is gone, the mountain that she's created disappears and everyone is back in Midvale. Oh my goodness. It's just, I have to say with that uh, Jimmy and Lucy kiss, like I was going back and forth on it the whole movie, but I just have to say that I hope that, you know, Lucy Lane came out in college. Um, Cause she totally like, okay, she plays softball. She has that mullety haircut. She talks a lot about boys she likes, whereas like nobody, even the most boy crazy girl talks about boys that much. I felt like she was overcompensating a little bit. I'm going to call it that she's, you know, pre-lesbian in her high school years. Viewers can tell me if they think I'm right or wrong. <laughs> she could have been, but for some reason she could have also just been really super into Jimmy Olsen. Yeah. <laughs> who, who knows? <laughs> Which, could, you know. go either way, I guess. He's such a ladies' man. Um, and also I said viewers, and this is a podcast. So listeners <laughs> can hey. tell me if they think I'm right or wrong. So, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much takes us full circle back to Supergirl diving back into the water and emerging back into inner space, um, back to Argo City, restoring power and saving her people. Um, So it's a nice, you know, kind of moment where, you know, she comes back and we're back to where we started. Um, That's the end. She has a mission. She accomplishes it. She gets home. She's a hero. Of course, we don't see any of that celebrating, but we assume that there's a big party or right. something. Yeah. Um, 
But now Supergirl was actually, you know, really important in a lot of ways, despite being, you know, super cheesy and what have you. Um, But it is the first live action portrayal of Supergirl. And that, you know, can't be denied. It's also the first attempt at a DC cinematic universe, like we said, because of the Jimmy Olsen tie-in between the Superman movies and, uh, and this one. Also, the fact that it's the first female-led superhero movie, um, and this was, you know, 31 years ago or something, right? Um, now, this also changed the way that the film industry felt about Thanksgiving weekend. Um, and according to Movies.com, they say, Supergirl faced an uphill battle going into Thanksgiving weekend Uh, 1984, that definitely gave the impression that this potential franchise was over before it even began. Uh, The film switched distributors from Warner Brothers, um, which is the corporate sibling of Supergirl publisher DC Comics, um, who passed on releasing it, to the then-new TriStar Pictures, forcing it out of a summer 1984 release. Um, The film opened overseas in the summer of 84, where the poor word of mouth slowly trickled down to U.S. fantasy film fans in the pre-internet days. Um, And to add insult to injury, it was recut by TriStar from 124 minutes to 105. Uh, It opened to very bad reviews and seemingly little interest. And yet Supergirl surprised everyone by not only opening at the number one box office spot, it did so at a surprisingly healthy $7.7 million for the five-day weekend, far more than anybody expected. And while $7 million might not seem like a lot in and of itself, the previous number one movies of Thanksgiving weekends uh, from 1982 and 83 uh, were E.T. and A Christmas Story. And both of those movies pulled in less than $4 million. So you have that to compare it to. Yeah, that's a cool bit of film history there. Very cool. So that wraps up our Supergirl in the movie discussion, but we got an email from a listener this week. And Yay! Yeah. So we got an email from Stephen Mitchell, and he says, I have really enjoyed the podcast so far. I listen to a lot of podcasts on a range of different topics while at work, and I must say that you ladies are very well organized. You don't tend to ramble off topic, you don't speak over each other, and there's no awkward silences. We try really hard. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> uh, you know what you want to talk about, have seam- seamless banter, and keep the show moving along. The chemistry you two have makes for a very enjoyable listening experience. And I think that's interesting because, Teresa, I know that you're a Trekkie and I'm a big Star Wars fan. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's why this podcast is not about those things. Yeah, it's I, <laughs> maybe, otherwise, maybe it balances it out somehow. Um, <laughs> and he also says, I look forward to watching Supergirl in hopes of being able to share it with my daughter. The fact that the tone of the show is to be more like The Flash has me thinking it should be okay. She'll be 10 when it airs and she loves Supergirl. As of right now, there hasn't been much Supergirl-related media, comic books or otherwise, that has been appropriate for her to consume. Other than the Super Best Friends Forever DC Nation shorts, she's left to wear pink S-Shield merchandise as her only real connection to the character. Although she did watch Superman Apocalypse with me and absolutely loved her in that. Keep up the great podcast. I know I'll continue to listen. And I I think Stephen... is onto something there about how a lot of the Supergirl merch is just pink stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I do have some sites, Stephen, that uh, you can check out if you want to look at stuff for your daughter. Um, my go-to site for like all my cool t-shirts that I have is redbubble.com. You can find all sorts of stuff. It's like uh, independent artists will submit things and it's, it's really cool. You won't find those, those, uh, t-shirts or hoodies or whatever anywhere else only on redbubble.com so if you do a search for Supergirl you can find all sorts of really cute stuff I found one today that was 
Batgirl, Supergirl, and Wonder Girl as the Powerpuff Girls. And it's adorable. I think I'm going to buy it for myself. So <laughs> there's some really cute stuff there. There's like a Little League, Justice League thing as uh, as the Justice League is kids. So I highly recommend Redbubble.com. There's also ThinkGeek.com that has uh, some cool superheroine caped sleep tanks, which is kind of like pajama sleepwear stuff. Um, there's also SuperheroStuff.com. There's uh, some cool uh, t-shirts there. They do have the the pink Supergirl sh- uh, shirts, but they have sh- shirts about anything boys can do, girls can do better. And it has Supergirl, Wonder Woman, and Batgirl. And that trio will pop up a lot in some of these shirts. So check out that. There's also Zazzle.com that has some cool logo and character t-shirts. And there's also a really cool Supergirl Shield Kids sleeping bag that I found that's like it's got some pink in there, but it's purple and pink. It is pretty cool. Uh, from simplysuperheroes.com. So uh, we'll try to provide uh, you guys with those links if you want to check these things out. Because there is some cool merch out there if you want to get some. Definitely. I'll make sure to get those in the show notes. And also from from this point forward, I tend to have a little bit of a potty mouth. Um, I don't know if I, in the first two of these episodes, have let that come out. But from this point forward, I do want to keep our young fans in mind. Um, if you ever want to listen with your daughter, I promise, hand to Bible right now from here on out, <laughs> I'm going to try to keep it clean so that uh, you can listen with your kids because I think that's super important. Yeah, that's awesome. I have a, a couple of friends who have actually been watching some Supergirl stuff with their children. So I think it's really cool that people are doing that. And uh, just a quick shout out this week. I was a guest on What the Fan Girls podcast to talk about Saturday Night Live. I'm actually on their second episode. Um, but, but I also chatted about DC Television and Supergirl Radio. So if you if you want to check them out, they're at whatthefangirl.com. And also on Twitter, they're at WTFangirlBlog. But if you want to keep in touch with us, there's several ways to do that. You can email us at supergirlradio at gmail.com. You can post a comment at our website at supergirlradio.com. You can like like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at Supergirl Radio. Uh, I'm going to post some exclusive pictures over at Instagram, and we're Supergirl Radio there. And we're on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you have time, rate and review us on iTunes and help us out. That'd be awesome. Definitely. That is super helpful if you guys could do that, if you like the show, which we hope you do. Um, and join us next week when we'll be discussing the introduction of Supergirl uh, from Superman the Animated Series uh, with the episode Little Girl Lost. Till then, I'm still Rebecca Johnson. And I'm still Teresa Jacino. And remember, if you're ever in the Phantom Zone, there's a way in, so there's a way out. <laughs>